called Ultra Tuscan Orange Grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. What's going to right field, Cody? What's going to right field? Uh, welcome to Fan Zone. And debate, I'm going to mute Cody until he talks um, because he's stressed the fuck out. We don't care about Fan Zone. We're going to talk about something's happening at Brooklyn's house, too. Holy shit. Uh, so, what's up? We're here for a very exciting match. I'm pumped about this one. Uh, we've got Robert Parker returning to the debate ring. Uh, we haven't seen him since early this season when he played RJ. And then we have Cameron Holtzman back on a two-win streak. Uh, winner, of, winner of this is going... Yeah, a two-win streak. That's right. <laughs> going Winner of this goes to a uh, number one contenders match against, uh, it's already been confirmed against Nazario. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. Cody, you are here. You're stressed out. Do you have anything you want to say? Mute. I, th I think you muted the wrong person. Um, I think Brooklyn's having a house party. I'm not 100% what's going on. Uh, yeah, I could give crap less about movie debate at this point in time. Much bigger things. I love the Red Sox more than I love my own wife. So at this point in time, I am very, very on edge. So I'm hoping these competitors keep it short. They yell at each other a lot, and I'm going to hopefully write a C or an R on my board to indicate who I'm giving the point to, um, because it certainly isn't Carlos Correa anytime soon. That bastard can go away. <laughs> and Brooklyn, you are here to judge. Welcome back. It's been a while. How are you doing? Uh, well, it's been it's been all right. Uh, Cody is somebody who has been recently separated. Probably not the best thing to say um, that you love a baseball team more than your wife. Um, I've told but, her uh, since 2015. I don't care. She yeah, well, it. fun. Yeah, well, uh, Cam, uh, Cam and Robert's going to be a really fun, really fun match. Uh, I think they will have a nice, uh, nice back and forth. Robert is usually pretty, like, pretty, pretty, pretty quick pace, but then Cameron is nice, has a nice, like, calm, cool, collected, and he can kind of like slow it down pretty naturally. Absolutely. So we're going to start by bringing in the uh, lower uh, ranked competitor, Mister Holtzman. Cameron, you've won two matches to get here. Now you're playing Robert. Uh, Robert's been around these parts. He's played for the title twice. How are you feeling? Uh, yeah, obviously, Robert's an intimidating opponent to have to face for my third match. Like you said, he's played for the belt twice. Uh, that's as many times as I've played, period. <laughs> um, but no, I'm excited. Uh, I I took what happened what, uh, last match where I wrote most of my arguments uh, while working all day in a fake hospital uh, and I did that again because I had the same job on Sunday again. So I wrote more arguments in a fake hospital uh, while waiting for people that want to be doctors to come yell at me. Um, so sounds in all, serious, in, in all seriousness, uh, I think this is going to be fun. Uh, I think there's some very interesting arguments that are going to be had today. Um, and Brooklyn described me as calm. And to that, I say, I don't know if you watched my last two matches. That's <laughs> fair. That's fair. Uh, we will now bring in Mr. Parker. Uh, Robert, um, Hello. it's been a while since you've been here. The last time you were here, you played RJ in a very close match. It was. Um, but now you're back. How are you feeling? I am. I'm feeling great. It's no orange grapefruit, but I do have some Michelob Ultra uh, keeping keeping uh, on brand. Uh, no, this should be a good one. I, I've... I think Cam is a, a smart debater. He's not somebody that you can really, you know, the people who've been around a little bit longer in the debate scene, you can kind of 
guess at how they might tackle a question, so you might be able to prepare for that a little bit more. It's a little bit harder to prep for somebody to like Cam, so uh, I'm interested to see if the prep work that I did will prove it all useful, uh, or if it will matter at all. So either way, it should be a fun time. That's fair. All right. Uh, so we are going to get right into the match. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, there are going to be uh, four prep questions uh, based on uh, categories that the competitors drafted. Cody and I then wrote some questions to give them. They're going to debate them. So uh, they will each have a minute to open their argument, followed by a five-minute free-form followed by a one-minute closing. And then at the end of the debate, Cody Brooklyn and I will get our handy-dandy boards. We'll write down who we think uh, won the point uh, and best two out of three wins the point. First person to three points is the winner. Any questions about how the game is going to work, gentlemen? Uh, when are we adding Survivor to fandom? Next season, <laughs> aka never. Okay. Uh, with that, Robert wins. Robert wins. Move on. Let's go. <laughs> Let's fight. All right. So, uh, we are going to get right into the first question. This is in the category of Middle Earth, which was drafted by Mr. Parker. The question is, which Middle Earth character that didn't encounter Smog would have the best chance of killing him? Uh, Robert, you drafted this category, so you get to go first. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. All right, so Smaug, first of all, very, very powerful being in Middle-earth. Uh, there's not like, you know, dozens or hundreds of, of characters or, or beings that uh, would have a shot at defeating him. He's very powerful, very old, very strong, very ancient. Uh, but one character who would for sure just absolutely decimate Smaug, and it's not even close, would be Sauron. I'm talking Sauron from the prologue of Fellowship of the Ring, when he has the Ring of Power, when he's commanding all of the other rings. That's when he's at his height, not talking when he's in his little tower with the eye, like the physical embodiment of evil. Sauron is basically a demigod. Uh, he can, I mean, we, we saw him in Fellowship just... Uh, striking down hundreds and hundreds of of also very powerful creatures uh he can grow with the size of the ring when he has the ring it's basically unlimited power not only can he control the minds of weaker creatures and i would argue that Sauron is or that smog is a weaker creature but also just the immense power that he wields he would put smog in a headlock and then just like snap his neck super quick time all right uh, we'll move over to mr holtzman uh, for his opening argument, one minute when you start talking, sir. Now, ladies and gentlemen, my opponent here is clearly trying to do something which goes outside the realm of the question, which is make it about one particular scene and one particular movie. But that's not the case. This is about the full thing, but we'll get to that. We'll argue that later. Uh, I'm going to tell you about my pick, uh, which my pick is the Balrog, a.k.a. Durin's Bane, a.k.a. that big freaking fire guy from Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, the Balrog is a literal demon made of fire. Now, when you think about a dragon, what is a dragon's primary form of attack? If you guessed fire, you would be correct. Uh, so I have a character who is basically immune to the primary form of attack of its opponent. As well, I think the Balrog, in terms of size, in terms of ability, uh, in terms of just general like 
intimidation in terms of general powers is more evenly matched with Smaug to be able to take him down, whereas Sauron has a few glaring weaknesses that we've seen and that have been proven throughout the entire franchise, which I will get to in the main argument. Time. All right. Balrog, Sauron, five-minute freeform. Don't talk over each other or I will beat you with a stick. I live very close to one of you when you guys start talking. So the problem with the Balrog is you're right that it is a fire demon. That's absolutely true. Uh, it's also like sort of a lackey. Uh, the the Balrogs are creatures that uh, were sort of underlings to Sauron's boss. So in the hierarchy, there's like a lot of them. You're talking about just the one. They're all down here. Sauron is a god being. Uh, he's like a, a, a half god creature, uh, and also probably immune to fire with the Ring of Power. He can do the same things that uh, uh, Gandalf did, essentially. So if Gandalf can make the little shield that protects uh, from the Balrog's whip, he can probably defend against some fire from a, a little old dragon, too. So you keep saying that Sauron is a half god, but I argue to you, half god is not as powerful as full demon. You also say, it oh, is, they both work under the same boss then they're both underlings for the same guy. So saying that there's a hierarchy there, if they're both under the same guy, that argument is kind of null and void. As well, in terms of the, the fire thing, uh, saying Sauron is immune to fire, Sauron isn't immune to swords, just regular swords cutting him in the hand. Like Sauron was defeated Smaug by... Use a sword? Sauron was defeated <laughs> by elves. Sauron was defeated by men and elves. Mortal, very easily killable beings who can be killed by an arrow or a sword. The Balrog was killed by the most powerful wizard we have seen, and even so, the Balrog took him out with him. The fight doesn't. The question doesn't specify that the Balrog has to live through this fight. The Balrog just has to kill Smaug, and as we've seen, the Balrog will go as far as it takes, and will even give his own life if it means that he defeats Smaug. I, I don't think giving your own life like necessarily makes you stronger in this argument, but uh, if you're talking about the hierarchy, that argument is not null and void because the Balrog isn't a demigod, and Sauron is. There is a hierarchy. Uh, just because you say there's not doesn't mean that there's not. There literally is. There are different types of angelic beings. But you're saying uh, that one and, half is stronger than one whole, and that's not the case. When did I say that? I didn't. I said, said the Balrog is weaker. Being a demigod is stronger than being the Balrog, but if it's it half is. god versus full demon... No, it's not a demon. It's not a demon. It's it's like a. It's literally not. It, it, the, the Balrog is not a demon creature. It's basically like an attack dog. That's essentially what it is. Uh, it, it is not a demon. It's not a god. It's not an angel like Sauron is. And Sauron was defeated by the uh, the Last Alliance. And the reason that is is because he got cocky. It's not because he wasn't as strong as Isildur. It's because he uh, he um. It's because he got cocky. It's because he like went out and tried to face them head on in a field, right? And you know the real reason that he lost that fight because J.R.R. Tolkien likes the good guys to win. If this is like a legitimate brawl, like a Smash Bros. fight between Sauron with the One Ring and Smaug, not be not some narrative uh, thing where the the heroes have to win, uh, Sauron is going to destroy him ten times out of ten. You're talking about the Balrog size. Sauron with the Ring of Power can absolutely reach that same height. Sauron can use a number of different weapons we've only seen the balrog use a whip what's a whip gonna do against the scales that a black arrow could barely penetrate nothing so first of all i think arguing the narrative argument of that a character lost because they were written to lose is ridiculous and irrelevant a character lost 
period, end of sentence. He got defeated. Did he get cocky? Absolutely. If you think Sauron would get cocky against the biggest army amassed to defeat him, to defeat him while he has this army of soldiers, I'm pretty sure Sauron's going to get pretty cocky against a single dragon who can be felled by the weapons true. of man. I, I, think, I think he respects uh, dragons and more powerful beings. He doesn't see elves and humans as powerful beings. He sees them as corruptible. He would see a dragon as an, an actual opponent, as an actual... Uh, powerful being he sees humans as these tiny little worms he's not going to see smog as some ant he's going to see him as uh, an actual fight an actual villain that's been around for so long he's going to respect that he's not going to get cocky and again like he got defeated by a guy with a sword because he went in to go try to touch him with his ring hand when have we seen smog use a sword Smogs does not have Smog anything doesn't that need a sword. He's a fucking dragon. He can eat a man. He can pick him up. If we're talking not about something as big as Sauron with the ring, Sauron with the ring of Sauron power, he's sixteen by times as big as a fucking person. And do you know how damn fast a dragon could reach a volcano by just picking the man up and dropping him in? He cannot you pick him up. He's the same size as the Balrog. There is an entire franchise. There is an entire franchise based around this. And also, the dragon has dragon fear ability. Just by looking in someone's eye, he can terrify them. Sauron this is, is a D&D. Giant Show me where that's written or said in the movies. It's literally shown that when Bilbo is in his presence, he gets more afraid. The Balrog can fly and face Smaug on the same If Balrog can make quips about being a barrel rider, he's, he's not scared. Sorry, Time. that's not true. <laughs> Cam. You have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Robert is going to try and keep framing everything I say as untrue. And the fact of the matter is that's not the case. We see him, we see the Balrog use a whip. We see the Balrog use a sword. We see the Balrog take out the strongest, most powerful wizard that we've seen in the series. Regardless of whether or not the Balrog died to do it, he did it. The Balrog will give everything. He will give his all, and he will do whatever it takes to defeat Smout. We have seen Sauron got cocky, sure, and maybe he won't do that again. But Sauron is all about preserving his own life. He does not have the dedication. He does not have the willingness. He does not have the extreme ability to go so far because he is more about self-preservation than getting the kill and getting the win. This is about defeating Smaug and the Balrog can do that better. As well, Sauron with his massive armies, Robert can argue all he want, but if someone in Sauron's army defeats Smaug, that's not Sauron defeating him, that's a different guy. Like, Sauron is very limited by the abilities of the ring, and the abilities of the ring can be easily defeated and countered, especially by magical beings, especially by those that can pick him up, throw him in a volcano with the ring, that can eat him whole. There's a lot of different things that Robert is just ignoring in favor of his own thing time all right move over to robert robert you have one minute to close your argument when you start talking so uh you're, you're talking about how the balrog will give his all and try real hard and give his own life you don't think in a life or death situation any creature would do that against smog of course they would it's an irrelevant argument uh as far as the abilities of the ring they're not easily defeated they're limitless you're talking about how smog can just pick up sauron and carry him to some mountain and drop him in that's ridiculous if he can do that to uh sauron he can do that to the balrog too with the ring of power sauron can be as big as a mountain he can be as big as small smog these are two like giants fighting it out it's not some like little elf dude that he could just pick up and tear apart and eat he cannot do that to sauron literally just the size the amount of power that he has sewn into the ring uh you're talking about how he'll, he'll try real hard and and give it his all you think sauron won't do that too he poured his life force into the ring he's not about preservation he's about power and if his power will be gained by defeating smaug of course he'll give it his all that's a ridiculous argument okay that's all i got Ending about five seconds early.
Will it matter in the end? Um, okay. Um, judges. Good. Okay. Uh, I'll go first. I'm going to go with Robbie on this one. I thought that the cam actually did a really, really, really good job on this, and both both did. At the end of the day, what kind of won it for me was uh, Cam spent a lot, a lot of time taking down Sauron, and I thought Robert did a really good job of defending it. And Robert also... Cam didn't have much to say against Robert's attacks on the Balrog. To me, he was able to pretty much defend that and attack that really well for me. Uh, so I went with Robert. Cody, you go next. You're muted. You're muted. We were tied, and now it's four runs. We're down, so I hate fan zone, and I'm probably never showing up again. Um, but I went with Robert Parker um, mainly because at basically the same conversation that you said every time you brought up something against um, the Balrog or anything like he's a lat, like he's a attack dog, big as a mountain. Pick him up and eat him. Like there was just a lot of counterpoints. I felt like I needed to like get people's take away people's pop pocket protectors and suspenders because I was this is the nerdiest fight I've ever <laughs> fucking heard in my entire life. Why I've tried to watch baseball. So I'm proud of all you. Uh but yeah, Parker. All right, Brooklyn, your vote doesn't count. Where would you go gone and why? Uh I also went with Robert for the same reasons that you guys did. Um I wasn't sure if the um if like the if the corruptible thing with like the elves was, was gonna be enough, but Robert actually did a really good job uh being super efficient in his closing remarks, uh just kind of wrapping up everything that he brought in. So all right. So Robert wins point number one. We are going to move on to question number two, which comes in the category of comedy. And the question is, what is the best kill in the Cornetto trilogy? Uh, so Cam, you drafted this. You get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. So more than anything else, at its heart, the Cornetto trilogy is about comedy. It is a comedy franchise that bends other genres into the world of comedy. And I think no kill in an Edgar Wright movie better combines comedy with the genre that they're currently engaging in than Tim Messenger's death and Hot Fuzz. Uh, for those who don't, who don't know the name or don't remember, uh, Tim Messenger's death is the one where at the carnival in Hot Fuzz, uh, the spire of the church is dislodged. Uh, and falls on his head and crushes his head and blood spurts out everywhere. It is an absolutely incredible and engaging visual. It looks in, like very realistic, uh, but also at the same time is very comedic and very exaggerated in this movie that is all about exaggerated and uh, like funny, goofy kills while still engaging in this story. Um, it serves the story well, it moves the story forwards, and it pushes things along for all of the characters with their investigation and with the conspiracy going along. Uh, and it's just a, it's not only a funny kill and an entertaining kill, but an important one as well uh, to the fabric of the film. Fabric of the film. Strike it from the record. Uh, bring in Robert. Robert, you have one minute. Why don't you start talking? So I agree with Cam that uh, the the whole series is about uh, comedy in its heart and bending other genres into that. Uh, but 
also good kills you want them to be justified you want them to have great visuals obviously both of ours have great visuals you want them to push the plot forward both of ours push the plot forward i went with david's death from Shaun of the dead uh this is the roommate basically of one of the characters who uh is about to shoot sean tries to shoot sean the gun is empty uh is broken uh they're in this bar and the zombies break in and tear him apart like his guts out they tear his head off all limb from limb all this stuff it's super gory uh but it looks wonderful uh it's surprising it is comedic uh and more importantly than anything the character deserves it uh the character does shady and shitty and uh underhanded things for the entire film uh so it feels justified it feels moral in the context of the movie it, it feels like it makes sense uh the tim messenger death is just like comes out of nowhere and he doesn't really deserve it and it's a little bit confusing and jarring in the moment Time. all right hey i've seen both these movies now i didn't the last time we talked about these on this show but i have now uh five minute freeform when one of you starts talking I'll let you take this one. <laughs> I just opened. So I think the biggest problem with David's death within Shaun of the Dead is that his death kind of doesn't serve a purpose to the story. It doesn't move it forward. It just removes his character from it so that he's out of the way so that we can focus more on the core three, core four that are still left. It also doesn't hit the comedic beats of some of the others of, of some of the other deaths of the zombies like Mary early on in the film, but it also doesn't hit the emotional beats of Barbara's death as well in the film. It exists in this weird middle space where it's not the best of either way, and it also doesn't combine either of those like moods into one scene thing i don't think a death necessarily has to be funny to be good though like even though the movies are comedies there are still moments that uh you can have that are not comedic that do still tear at the heartstrings that are still justified that do still make sense in the context of the movie Shaun of the dead is also partly a horror movie it's partly a zombie movie and it is funny at times but sometimes you just want to see a crazy zombie kill that doesn't have like a gag in it and i think this is the best example of that you're saying it doesn't serve a purpose for the plot but you just described the purpose for the plot. It's so that we can focus more on these characters. It's to get his character out of the way. It's to have them each advance in their own stages. You know, there's two characters who are trying to tear his legs while he's being torn apart by zombies. Like, I think that's pretty emotional for those characters' arcs. Uh, there's definitely a purpose. Whereas Tim Messengers, again, like I said, it just comes out of nowhere. It's just a guy doing his job. He's a journalist who's just, like, standing next to the clock tower, and then suddenly he's dead. Uh, I think it's just See, but, it's a little bit too sudden. But it does fit in a place in the story, and it moves the story forwards at that point messenger is ready to give information to, to nicholas angel he's ready to move their investigation forwards he is the impetus for what is going to move forwards and right as nicholas angel is about to get that he's about to get some we'll pause for a second am i cam is back let's continue so yeah, Tim Messenger is about to give this information. It's about to be this big boost forwards in the stories. And right as Nicholas Angel is about to get that, finally uncover stuff, it is cut short. But it still gives him something because this death is public. This death is seen by everybody. It finally not only informs the public that there's something suspicious and that the police officers is something suspicious, but then the investigation that follows, you see how much they're willing to hinder and remove Nicholas from the investigation. It shows how it, this is like from the top down corruption and what's revealed in the end you say it's pointless it's not pointless as as menial as the reason that the nwa has like they have a reason they have a purpose and it fits within the story of the film yeah i didn't say it's pointless i i, I didn't say that at all uh i i just said that like it's surprising and it comes out of nowhere and it's not really hinted at and uh it's uh, just a little bit out of nowhere it's a little bit out of place uh and like also if we're talking what was that 
all all of the kills in the movie are surprises. They are right, all correct. Insane. That's why I'm saying none of them are the best, right? Because none of them are like set up well or like the payoff is done. And well. neither yeah, is David. Exactly, it yeah. comes out of nowhere. Uh, he's pushed out a window and then he's ripped apart by. That makes sense in the context of a zombie, zombie horror movie. movie. That's, David's death. That's, that makes, David's kill isn't unique. If I want to watch films that ripped apart by zombies, there's 11 seasons of The Walking Dead. There's five, ten George Romero movies. There's an infinite number of zombie movies. Messengers is unique. Go back to Robert. Yeah, yeah, no. Exactly what I'm saying. David's death makes sense in the context of a zombie movie. To Messenger's death makes no sense in the context of a police procedural story. Like the uh, uh, David's death is exactly what you would see in a George Romero movie. It's exactly what you would see in Walking Dead. It, it's exactly what you would see in a zombie horror movie. You, it, it fits perfectly in the context. You were talking about how uh, these movies genre bend a little bit. It's exactly what you would see in the genre bend of Shaun of the Dead. Whereas your uh, Death makes very little sense in the genre bend of the police story. See, but the thing is, like, Hot Fuzz is about going far, taking things a little too far, giving us kills that are absolutely insane and do push the envelope and maybe don't make sense because there's this massive conspiracy, because there's these people willing to go insanely far and do whatever to make things look like an accident. As much as it may be this insane, crazy visual and not necessarily the most realistic of kills, it's still an incredible kill and an incredible death. The problem with David's death, honestly, is more than anything, the actor, the actor doesn't manage to sell it. He doesn't show any terror on his face he doesn't scream he doesn't do anything he just lies yeah, he, back. he just lies back and kind of is like eyes rolled back laying back like this and he's just accepting it and not really like showing the terror he just gets pulled back and then we see him get ripped apart and it's because he's already dead i mean do you want like 45 seconds of him going ah, ah, ah! No, no you don't his, his chest is ripped open and his organs are pulled first of all it's the best visual effects out of any kill in the trilogy the visuals the the practical effects look amazing but his organs are ripped out of his chest do you want him to be like screaming like nicholas cage in the wicker man no he's already dead from a character he's already when dead. He's about to die there's none from him time Alrighty. Uh, Robert, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. The whole movie of Shaun of the Dead is not about like over the top, uh, emotion, like, uh, uh, kooky deaths. Like, it, it is comedic, but it's also in the context of a zombie horror movie. And this is the perfect death. Again, the character deserves it, it's justified in the context of the genre and of the movie. Uh, it it's it's foreshadowed earlier in the film and the payoff is still there in the sense of the rest of the characters arcs and what they go through for the rest of the movie the visual effects the practical effects are the best out of any kill in the trilogy as for tim messenger's death and hot fuzz like yeah it's surprising yeah it's shocking yes it like is a plot device really uh but you don't really like get a lot of emotional payoff of it you get plot payoff sure absolutely you don't really get emotional payoff uh it, it's like all the other deaths in hot fuzz which is to say they're over the top they're kooky they're wacky they're insane but they don't make sense in the genre bend of the police procedural story that's all i got okay uh we'll move back over to cam cam you have one minute when you start talking the problem with making the argument of not getting enough emotion from the kill in Hot Fuzz is that you're really not getting the emotion from the kill of David either. If you think that the thing that makes a best kill is emotion, then Barbara's death in Shaun of the Dead is the correct pick. 
David's death does not fulfill either one to its whole, but also doesn't meld comedy and emotion at all. Like you, like you said, and like I've said, Messenger's death pushes the plot forward. It pushes the story forward. It gives characters motivation, and it gives us a great visual. David's death does not serve to push the characters forward. It just serves to remove someone who is holding the characters back. It doesn't motivate them. It doesn't inspire them. It doesn't give them anything more that they're trying to do. Just now he's out of the way, and we, he's a character we don't like anyways, so good. He's gone. Congratulations. Tim Messenger, we like him. Sure, he's a fool. He's bumbling, but he's likable enough, and he's well-meaning enough that we as an audience like him and when his death happens we continue to see that these deaths are meaningless and ridiculous and the reveal at the end proves to us that there is a story and that it fits within the place along with the time okie dokie um, uh, So, Brooklyn, we're going to start with you. Holy moly, this was close. Um, I'm going to go with Cameron um, for the same same reasons that I kind of did last time. Uh, his closing arguments uh, just kind of wrapped wrapped everything up. Uh, I had Robert in this for like for the most for the for like going in going in after freeform. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm going with Cam. Um, I also went with Cameron. I also thought this was really, really close. Um, as someone who knows for a fact that Robert Parker has not seen these movies, not a single one. Uh, oh, not a single one. He did really, really, really well. Thank and you. I almost, I almost wrote his name, but like Brooklyn said, uh, Cam's closing was really, really strong and kind of uh, shoved most of robert's stuff down but it was it was really close that, that was a good one uh cody we moved to um i'm gonna cover up the name um it was two two at before fans this two two before fans started <laughs> it is now currently nine two after fans started um i will never be back on the show after today um but um i just want to say uh edgar wright should get probably a restraining order against cameron holtzman it's kind of creepy how much he like knows about this stuff and i think he's kind of in love with him i went with cam though because yeah so. no right. kind of about it cody <laughs> so we are tied one to one. I wanted to pick the world's end, but no one actually dies in that movie. It's <laughs> fair. Uh, so we will move on to the next question, which was drafted by Robert in the category of directors. And the question is What is the best directed by Martin Scorsese movie? Uh, so, Robert, you drafted this. You get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. The answer is Goodfellas. Uh, it's the culmination of everything Scorsese has been leading up to at this point, and everything he's made since has sort of felt like a response to the heights that he reached in this movie. It is the perfect synthesis of his 70s dark tones and the underworlds and his smaller 80s movies that are sort of his passion projects and his Hollywood sensibilities that he's made since then. Uh, he blends the religiosity and the Catholic guilt and, of movies like Silence and Kundun and Mean Streets with uh, the, the violence and the, the penance 
elements of movies like Wolf of Wall Street and Shutter Island. Uh, everything is a choice. Every music uh, needle drop, every edit, every cut, every voiceover. He knows how to make uh, the underworld seem intoxicating and scary and grotesque and intriguing and just full of punishment. Every crime gets paid for in this movie. Uh, the last half hour, like you can see it uh, sort of as a, a, a drug uh, uh uh, parallel. The last 30 minutes are just paranoia. There's nothing left. It's the end of the rope of drug Time. addiction. Goodfellas is incredible. Goodfellas is incredible. Straight from the record. Uh, Cameron Holtzman, you now have one minute when you start talking. When it comes to Martin Scorsese's best movie, I think there really is only one answer, and that answer is The Departed. Uh, the Departed is able to is able to take what Martin Scorsese does best and just whittle it down into the most fine, polished thing that it, that it can be. It has incredible pacing. It has incredible performances. It has incredible characters. It has incredible dialogue. All of the characters are relevant to the story. They all stay in, and they all have their own storylines that have a clear beginning, a clear middle, and a clear ending. Everyone is relevant. Every action that takes place, every directing shot, every set design piece even, is deliberate and in its place and serves a purpose towards the story. Uh, Goodfellas, sure, it combines a lot of these things, but also saying that it combines these things from later movies, I think, is a moot point because saying it's his magnum opus combining all the things from the future is irrelevant. The Departed takes the one thing he is best at, the gritty, dark crime movie, the underbelly of New York especially, and or Boston, I guess, and brings it in, brings it all to a point, and makes it the best. Time. That's textbook pandering. Uh, okay. You guys have five minutes. Pandering. I've only seen three or four squares. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's not surprising with your pick. Okay. Uh, oh, Jesus, five minutes. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to be an asshole. So basically, uh, you're right. He does do the the gritty underworld thing to he very well, but he also does the religious uh, solo films very well, like the ones I mentioned already. He does do the big Hollywood movies. This was his first big hit with Goodfellas. He does a lot of things very well. There's not one thing that I would say Scorsese does best. I don't think that's very true. And also, you said each character has a clear beginning, middle, and end. That is absolutely false. James Badge Dale his character disappears for an hour and a half and comes back in in the elevator. Wahlberg disappears for an hour. Alec Baldwin disappears for an hour. This Departed, well, I love it. I, I don't want to like shit talk it too much because I truly do love this movie. Uh, it is clearly one of the messiest Scorsese movies. Artistically, it's a fun watch, but cinematically, thematically, it is so messy. The editing, the plot, the shots, the soundtrack needle drop. It's like he forgot that he already played Shipping Up to Boston, so let's just play it a fourth time. It, the Departed is such a messy movie. The accents are all over the place, from Vera Farmiga to Alec Baldwin doing an SNL character. It, it is a very, very cinematically messy, messy movie, whereas Goodfellas is like peak cinema like between the needle drops and the long shots and the freeze frames just everything it, it is it is perfect see but you're saying the departed being a messy movie is a thing that works against it and i don't think it is i think the fact that it's messy and unpolished actually makes it even better you have this grit you have this grime and you have this just like underbelly of this crime world and i think the fact that the movie is kind of unpolished the fact that the movie is like very rough and raw and like unfinished around the edges makes it better. It f it fits the story. It fits the characters. It fits what it's going for. I think the thing is you can say, yeah, uh, Martin Scorsese is great at doing this and this. Martin Scorsese is great at doing this and this. Then you could have picked one of those movies. At the end of the day, Goodfellas has a lot of problems. It relies heavily on narration and does so much of telling me and not showing me 
what is going on. It doesn't illustrate to me the things. It spends the first 15 minutes not really showing me, oh, hey, this is my father. Here is my relationship with him. This is all the story. It tells me, hey, here's the backstory of this guy. And here's the backstory of this guy. And here's the backstory of this guy. We don't see characters learning it. We don't see it going about. We're just told this and told to go along with it without questioning it. I, uh, attacking the narration of Goodfellas is like sinful. That it, it is maybe the best narration in any film ever because it does tell you things, but it also shows you them. I, I don't know where it comes from. It's just words. But, yeah. So yes, there is dialogue, there is narration in the movie, but also the uh, it informing about character is done visually. There is dialogue on scenes with Robert De Niro's character where there's close-up shots where he takes a drag off a cigarette where he, uh, you know, sort of sizes somebody up. And that is not uh, the dialogue telling you about that character. That is you looking at everything cinematically that's happening in that frame and saying the devil is on screen. That's not, uh, and also it's based on a book. Like, what do you want? They have to include some of the narration from the book. It's one of Scorsese's only screenwriting credits as he took. And I, I want to address one thing. You you made a counterpoint about my messy argument. I'm not talking about the gritty underworld that the world built. I'm not talking that the world building is messy. I'm saying that the physical, like, editing of the movie, the plot of the movie is messy. I dare you to tell me what the microprocessors, the 30 minutes that Departed spends on microprocessors, tell me what that has to do with the plot. I, Because I have no idea. I love that movie, but it is so messy. The editing, the cutting, the plot of that movie is messy as hell. See, but again, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I'm not disagreeing that the editing being messy is necessarily untrue. I'm saying it services the film. It fits all of these all of these things, whether deliberate choices or not, work with the tone of the film, work with the story of the film, and go along with it. Goodfellas wastes a lot of time. It truly does, and I'm sorry to offend anyone. It wastes a lot of time. There is a scene where we spend three minutes literally just being introduced to 20 guys so that we get the idea that, oh, hey, there's a bunch of guys named Tony as well. I can... Uh, you say Robert De Niro being on screen, oh, look, this is the devil. Why are we supposed to like him then? It's trying to make him like him. Well, you're not. Also, it's trying to make us believe he's 28 when he's 47. It, like, it casts actors who are way too old for the 60s and 70s portions of the movie. Sure, in the 80s portions, it's fine, but they don't look like the characters they're supposed to be playing. They don't look the right age, and it really takes you out of it when you have old man Robert De Niro playing a man who is told to us to be 28 years old. He's in 1990. He's not like it, the the movie yeah, and came in the out. 1990 portion. That's fine, but in the portion of the no, movie, no, no, I'm not talking about the plot. No, no, no plot of Goodfellas takes place in 1990. I'm saying Robert De Niro in 1990 probably looked how that character looked in 1970. Like that, that's not that far and if off. If you show also, me a picture let, and prove that, me, cool. Let me. Okay, so we're going to historical revel relevance on like actual mob figures. I it's a casting. I'm like the fucking casting director, all right? What I am going to uh, argue against is when you're talking about the twenty guys on scene. That is informing character about Henry. That's how Henry remembers those characters. That is an important. You remember Tony, scene, Tony, 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 every, Tony, Tony. Let Tony. me finish the, my fucking sentence, dude. Come on. Uh, Cameron, you get to go first. One minute when you start talking. At the end of the day, while The Departed might be messy, while it might be rough around the edges, that services the film, it goes along with the tone of the film, it goes along with the ideas of the film, that the crime world is messy, it is unfinished, it is raw, real, and not necessarily the most beautiful, polished thing. The problem with Goodfellas is that it wastes a lot of time and it's inefficient. It spends a lot of time telling us what to telling us what to think instead of showing us what to think and showing us what we should know. It spends a lot of time focusing on a main character who frankly doesn't fit and doesn't belong within this world and it's performed 
very annoyingly by Ray Liotta. Uh, it spends a lot of uh, the third act is totally inconsistent with the rest of the movie where it goes from being this uh, like the joys and the glory of being a member of this community and being a member of the gangster community to the fear and the wanting to get out. And it kind of distracts from things. Uh, characters also constantly talk over each other. You want to talk about editing choices. The sound editing and sound mixing in Goodfellas is terrible to the point where you can't hear important conversations because characters and background noise are drowning everything out. Like it just doesn't work. The freeze frames are jarring. There's a lot of technical issues with yours as well. Time. All right. Uh, Robert, you now have one minute when you start talking. I think you're conflating the parallel of the technical and cinematic choices of Goodfellas with the flaws of the department. I think those are very different things. The freeze frames, you say they're jarring, they're supposed to be. Those are, you freeze on a character's face to see what they're thinking in that moment. That's the point of a freeze frame. That's He uses it effectively. Every music is a choice. Every song, you the, the lyrics uh, correspond to the action on screen. Everything in Goodfellas is a choice and it is done for a cinematic purpose. The Departed, it's it's sloppy. It's, it's There's no intent behind anything in The Departed. The rat on the windowsill is one of the worst endings of any movie ever, and I can't believe it, it's just terrible. Nicholson uh, making rat noises and whipping out dildos and throwing cocaine on people just doesn't belong in that fucking movie. His racial rant doesn't belong in that movie. It makes no sense to the characters. I didn't hear a word about microprocessors from you. Uh, and Goodfellas, everything is done with intent. The characters being older, that's the casting director's fault, not the movie's fault. I think it makes do. You don't need the character to be 21 years old when it Makes sense with the better actors. Time. All right. I'm in danger. Gosh. Do I gotta go first? Yeah. Good. Because I'm going to take like seven minutes just to let you know. Shit. Alright. I'm. Microprocesses. <laughs> God damn it. I'm going to tell you what they mean, too. But... Okay. Cody, go. Um, so this this fight was fucking clumsy as shit. Like, across the board. You can't claim one thing a stylistic choice from Scorsese and then shit talk the stylistic choices in another movie. It was a shitty argument and it didn't work at all for me. Because one, you say, like, the freeze frames and the chaotic editing works in Goodfellas for the simple facts, but it doesn't work in The Departed for the fact because it's shitty. Um... And then you guys got like, you guys got on like what characters look like and how old they are and how realistic shit is. And you said the narration of Goodfellas is like sacrilegious to talk about. Like this, I just, I feel like no, neither one of you defended what either one of these movies are. You tried to tackle both of them, but I think you both missed the mark by a large margin. Like, you guys both went to the like the well of looking on the back of like letterbox reviews of people shit talking both of these movies and said I'm going to say that in this argument. <laughs> I went with Cam at the end of the day because I think Cam overall targeted Goodfellas and tackled it, and your counterpoints were to defend Goodfellas, but you used all the same arguments basically to knock down the Departed, which was a weird conversation to have. 
if you would have tackled maybe more of the accents or more of the stuff like that, maybe, but I don't know. It was weird. It was a weird fight. All right, Brooklyn, you're next. Uh, I went with Cam, uh, and I'm going on this purely because I think Robert spent a lot of his defense defending the prestige of Goodfellas as opposed to, like, the substance of it. But... Uh, okay, so Cam gets the point. I, much against my better judgment, Cody kind of convinced me. I actually did go Robert. Um, I it, it made me sad because I love The Departed. But, um, oh, yeah, there, uh, I, I agree with Cody. A lot of both arguments didn't, didn't work for me. And there were just a couple things that came from Robert uh, that I liked better. But at the end of the day... It was it was a little little oof, um, but anyway, Cam wins the point. It's almost, it's almost like they're two movies that are both really good and hard yeah, to say anything correct. about. <laughs> uh, you know, so fifteen minutes of chaotic at the beginning. I can say uh, I can say bad things about Goodfellas. Oh boy! All right, so uh, I'm gonna take you out before you do. Uh, so um, Cam goes up two to one. So Robert does need to hit this in order to stay in the game. We move on to question four. It's in the category of YA dystopia. The question is, pick a non-YA fandom character to join a divergent faction and why they would best be fitted to be in that faction. Uh, so, uh, Cam, you chose this. You need to go first. One minute when you start talking. Truth, honesty, justice, the most important things to the Candor faction. They are all about finding what is true, all about finding what is correct, what is honest, making sure people are not deceiving them, no matter how far it takes, no matter whether it leads to good consequences or bad consequences. They want one thing, and they want the truth. And there is no character in all of fandom who is willing to go far for the truth more than Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter franchise. We have seen in the Divergent franchise that the Candor faction is willing to use truth serum and torture people in order to get the truth. We see that in the Insurgent film uh, when the interrogation scene and the trial scene happens with uh, Triss and Four. Dolores Umbridge has literally held to those exact same tenets. She has tortured children. She has drugged children in order to get the truth in order to get what is honest and to get her own twisted sense of justice much like the faction time has. all right uh dolores umbridge and candor robert uh you now have one minute when you start talking we'll get to that uh hermione granger belongs an erudite uh this is a character who uh you said truth on oh we'll, we'll get to that uh erudite is all about the pursuit of knowledge of intellectual curiosity intellectual freedom uh and i think that's really what hermione stands for uh she's a character who not only is just the stereotypical smart character but what erudite really needs in the divergent series is uh, a foil for people like Janine and people like Caleb who are so focused on the pursuit of knowledge and so focused on power and obtaining it that they're just uh, 
morally grave, or they're not morally gray, excuse me. Uh, they're black and white, they're villains. Uh, what that faction needs is some morally gray. It is a character who uh, got into it for the right reasons, for that intellectual freedom, for that curiosity, for that knowledge. And I think that's exactly what Hermione stands for, is that pursuit of knowledge. And I think having a, a you know good character on Erudite just makes those movies so much more layered, so much more interesting to not have them just be like a faceless villainous Sorry. organization. All right. Both picking Wizarding World characters. Interesting. Um, don't talk over each other. God damn you both. Five minute free form. I want to start talking. So you said truth. Uh, so first off, the thing I want to say, you said that Umbridge tortures uh, and mutilates children. That is true. But it's to suppress the truth. I think you completely missed the bar on everything that Umbridge stands for. She's one of the most lying, hateful, vindictive bitches out there. Uh, she literally tortures children to keep the truth underground, to keep her own power above ground. She makes she physically mutilates harry potter because he is telling the truth and she wants him to stop that's not very candor my guy see but at the end of the day it's not that she's trying to necessarily bury the truth she has her beliefs she <laughs> has what she is going with she has what she thinks is the truth and thinks that harry is lying and so she punishes her she punishes harry for his perceived lies the biggest problem with hermione going into erudite is that erudite really doesn't want free thinkers it doesn't want new thinkers we've seen in the movies erudite is not about free thinking bring your own ideas it's going there going with janine we saw caleb he was all happy and excited to go in and to be this new thinker and within days he was brainwashed he was on their side we had the opportunity to see this new face that we are on the side of this protagonist go into there and he gets turned to this faction that is against everything else and that is truly against actual intellectual Th this partners. isn't this isn't who would succeed most in whatever faction. It's who belongs in that faction. And Hermione belongs in Erudite. Whether or not you think she would be brainwashed by Janine's bullshit is completely irrelevant. That doesn't matter at all. It's just what does she align her values? What do her values align most with? And you're wrong. Umbridge knows that Harry is lying. She knows that Voldemort is back. She's doing it to keep the government in power, to keep herself in power, and to keep Harry suppressed, to keep the truth suppressed, to keep honesty suppressed. That is not not candor at all i don't care what you think that she believes she knows that what she's doing is wrong and unjust and she does it anyways she is willing to torture children to keep lies on the surface to keep the public misinformed of the truth that's not candor that is the complete and exact opposite but Candor believes that their justice, their sense of truth, their way of doing things is better than everyone else. It is shown in Insurgent. When they say, we have to have a trial, we're turning you into the trial, and they plan to turn them in, it's shown. They will fall, and they will put their own sense of justice above what is necessarily considered right in terms of what, going after what they think is true. They hold their own trial outside of the law for Triss and for and make their own sense of justice because they believe their sense of justice and their sense of truth is better than the one that is all-encompassing and within the entire society. Hermione can't be an erudite. The thing is, it's about fitting. And sure, does she belong there? Sure. The other place yes, she belongs... exactly. There is, you go. Thank you. And the other place that she belongs is Dauntless because she's brave. And you know what happens in the Divergent world? If you're brave and smart, you're Divergent. And what are the erudites actively doing in the entire trilogy? Hunting Divergents. Based on the concept. Based on the concept... Janine is doing that, not the erudites. That's... Sure, 
Hermione fits in. But based on the actual execution, the actual things we see about the faction and its leadership, she does not belong there and would not fit. It's their values. I don't care who's leading the faction, dude. That's not the argument at all. The it's argument... about the movies. The argument, yeah, the argument is about the movies and it's about who belongs in what faction, whose personal values most align with that faction's values, and that is Hermione with Aria. I don't care if you think that like she'd be brainwashed by Gina. I don't care if you think she would haunt the Divergent. That's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. It's who line aligns most with a faction, and it's Hermione and Aria. And by the way, the uh, the Candor sense of a, of a, their sense of justice is still a fair trial. It's a real trial. All right. It's not some farce of her carving words into somebody's hand. The only reason you picked Umbridge is because she made Harry write I must not tell lies, which the entire thematic purpose of those moments is to show the irony of how anti-truth and anti-justice she really is. That's the entire point of her character. See, but that's not the entire reason I picked her. I picked her because she has a strong sense of attempting to find what she believes is the truth. She it's is not about what she believes. Go- it's, it's actual truth. It's the actual she- truth. They use an actual truth serum. It's actual she truth, not what she, not her yeah, and she uses actual truth serum in the in the movies. She uses Veritas Ramon Cho Chang. So stop saying that she wouldn't do that because she does. I didn't. I never said she wouldn't. Character. Hermione, you keep saying it's irrelevant what the factions actually do, just on the core values. It is absolutely relevant. Hermione, a mudblood who has been persecuted her entire life for being different, for being the other, for being like genetically unsimilar to the rest of the wizards. Do you really think she would put up with the persecution, with the attack on Divergence? She would. You really think she would agree and go along with? attacking the lesser with making the lesser feel as though they are persecuted and being killed the way she has been treated the entire not world. every erudite is holding a gun to the back of the head of every divergent but they're expected to all right cam <laughs> no they're not striking from the record uh cam you have one minute when you start talking sorry doesn't robert go first because this is my question yeah you right shut i up. know we both pick wizarding world Shut up. Yeah, you're right. Okay, uh, Robert, you have one minute when you start talking. Umbridge lies to Fudge. She lies to Dumbledore. She lies to Harry. She lies about Dumbledore's army. She lies to the government. She lies about everything. Candor is not about my truth. It's about the truth. And Umbridge is as anti-the truth as you can possibly get in any fandom character ever. I just, that it is baffling to me how you can believe that Candor uh, aligns with Umbridge's values at all. Does she do heinous shit? Yeah, a lot of the factions do. That doesn't make her, because she's willing to torture people, it doesn't make her Candor. She is one of the most dishonest people in any fandom movie. Hermione, you're right, she probably wouldn't put up with the persecution of the Divergent. But you know what? It'd be really interesting if we actually saw somebody on the inside of Erudite not putting up with that, pushing back against Janine, pushing for the intellectual freedom, pushing for the values of that faction. Maybe that'd be a more interesting take. Whether you uh, get, it, her values line up with the factions and seeing her as a gray area Time. would be more interesting. Mr. Holtzman, you have one minute now. Now you have one minute when you start talking. You said that it would be interesting to see Hermione go into that place and be in, involved in this. But the thing is, that's not the question. We're not being asked to pitch this character as part of the story. It's part of the movies. We're just saying, what is the faction? Where do they belong? And the truth of the matter is, Hermione does not belong in Erudite within the films. Within the films, Hermione would not fit in. As much as you say, uh, uh, Erudite is not about 
striving for further knowledge within the films. It's about going with their knowledge, going with what is considered blind logic and not questioning anything else. Hermione is shown to be a bright young wizard, the smartest of her age, but she's also shown to have rebellion and be able to rebel against people in authority against her, as she does with Umbridge in the woods. Umbridge, as much as she may have a twisted sense of justice, as, may, as well as she may hide the truth from some people uh, in order to further her own goals, her own goals at the end of the day are to get rid of her perceived lies, and she will go as far as it takes using the exact methods that Candor uses. Hermione would not belong in Erudite. She does not belong thematically. Okay, okay, as they say. Cody in Brooklyn, are you both uh good? Yeah. Okay, I get to go first on this one. Um, I'm giving it to Robert. Um, I think Cam did a decent job of trying to like tell me why Hermione would maybe be bad in Erudite, but Robert completely obliterated Cameron's argument for why Umbridge. Uh, would be in Candor, um, and he he had the hand on the what's the phrase? He had the hand on the stick, and he didn't let up the whole time. I don't know, it was something with a car. Uh, Titan in theaters now. Uh, he had the foot, he had the foot on the pedal. There you go. That's the one. Brooklyn. Thank you. Anyway, I give it to Robert Cody. You go next. Um, you're so nice about things. I'm just blunt. Uh, one had one of the worst picks I've ever heard in my entire life with Dolores Umbridge. I'm just going to be honest with you. When I heard it, I said, that bitch knows that <laughs> the Dark Lord's back. That bitch is hiding shit. Um, and then I just think it was overall. I put spider, so I hope you know what that means. Um, but, uh, I just think overall, like, even if Hermione did not belong in that faction. Robert at least painted the picture of why that person's okay. Dolores Umbridge was shot in the head at the start of this entire argument. Like when he's like she, he hides the she hides the truth. And even I went back like in reference because we said we could reference like fact check the movie. Like the whole trial stuff is truth stuff. Like the truth does come out like at the end. Not like they're trying to hide stuff. So that's why I went with the spider. All right, Brooklyn, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? Um, I thought Cam had very tasty Kool-Aid, uh, and it got my vote. So, <laughs> all right, sounds good. Well, uh, this... Brooklyn over. What does that tell you? For the record, Thomas Scully <laughs> told me that her, uh, Dolores was a good idea. <laughs> told you. I, what did I say I about that? I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> told anyway, you. Fucking uh, told you. <laughs> Uh, so, this does mean we are tied and moving on to the speed round. Here's how this is going to work. Uh, Cody and I have uh, come up with a question that was in a uh, side of fan zone that was randomized, and then a category that was randomized. So, um, what we are going to do is I'm going to say the question, then I'm going to repeat the question after I've said it the second time. You may answer said question. Um Whoever says their answer first will be going first. Each player will have 45 seconds, uh, followed by a 30-second rebuttal. You can use your time however you wish. You do not need to spend it all on yours or all on theirs or whatever. You can do what you want with your time. You can talk about rainbows the whole time if you want to. Uh, so are there any questions about how this is going to work? No. Okay. Uh 
This will be coming from the war zone side of fan zone in the category of sci-fi fantasy. The question is, who is the best non-fandom sci-fi character? So again, who is the best non-fandom sci-fi character? And we'll be right back because I always put a cut here because you can use the internet. You're fine. Yep. Ellen Ripley. Oh, maybe I don't even need to cut. Okay. Eh, fuck it. Gary King from The World's End. Okay. Uh, that, yeah, I would. that movie is labeled sci-fi fantasy on, or sci-fi on IMDb. I would certainly hope so. I would hope so as well, but I just want to double check. That's fair. I would personally accept it. I just want to make sure. It is. Okay, we're good. Okay. Um, so, I'm going to take out Cody and Brooklyn. And um, since Robert spoke first, he will get his 45 seconds first. Um, Robert, I will stay on screen to give you your countdown. You have 45 seconds when you start talking. I just think Ripley is one of the most layered characters in all of movies, not just sci-fi movies. The way that she grows over the progression of all four of her films is just astounding. It's really good writing. Even if you don't like those later Alien movies, her part in them is top-notch incredible in every single film. She's uh, this timid, you know, by-the-books uh, soldier, essentially, in the first Alien. She becomes uh, this badass fighter in Aliens, but you also see her relationship with Newt. She's incredibly vulnerable in that movie as well. Uh, she's so relatable. Uh, she's a uh, role model for women. Uh, she was nominated for a damn Oscar. You see her progression over the course of the films with her contempt for androids, hating uh, Ian Holmes' character in the first one, still not trusting Bishop and aliens all the way to embracing them in Alien Resurrection. It's just a really full and complete arc. Time. Cam, 45 seconds when you start talking. Gary King in The World's End shows that we are more than the things that have happened to us, that we are more than our circumstances. It shows us this grounded, human, realistic performance while going through this absolutely insane thing. It is simultaneously comedic and heartbreaking. When you learn the truth about his character at the end of the film, and you learn that he has been through this horrible through this horrible state of uh, his mind, that he's been through depression, that he's been through a suicide attempt, you feel for him. You get him. You get him in one scene. You get him in one movie you get him from the jump the moment you meet him that character is established and you see him and he doesn't overstay his welcome he's there the whole time he has these great moments of comedy he has these great moments of emotion he has these great relationships with his friends uh while also being his own person and going through a journey through the course of this single movie time robert 30 seconds when you start talking you said it yourself one scene one movie uh, defined by the characters around him. That doesn't make a great character. That makes a great character in a good movie, but the best sci-fi character of all time. You could have gone for something in Blade Runner or Arrival, whatever you wanted to, but you chose a character that uh, some of the emotions, some of the vulnerability is lost on him because there's so much comedy, because he's so defined by the others in his group. One scene, one movie, as opposed to an entire franchise to decades of character growth with one incredible actress behind her. Ripley, I think, is by far more iconic time. and a better character. Better character stricken from the record. Cameron, 30 seconds when you start talking. 
Clearly, you misheard me because I didn't say Gary King is defined by the characters around him. I said he stands out just in spite of them. The problem with Ellen Ripley is that Ellen Ripley is given almost the ideal circumstances as a per as a character to become this icon, to become this hero. She is given the position of being a one smart person surrounded by a bunch of idiots, constantly making the wrong decisions, and the only one who knows what she's doing. She's surrounded by a bunch of other characters who frankly detract from her. They just don't give her the support that she deserves. They're just in the way and hindering her journey. Gary King is able to rise above himself and the things that have happened Time. to him, that's not most iconic. Most iconic, strike it from the record. Um, okay. I'm sad. <sighs> okay. You good, Cody? Yeah, but I think Brooklyn's drawing a pony or something. No, Brooklyn, good. you're good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, um, I believe, yeah, because Brooklyn had the Kool-Aid last time, so Brooklyn gets to go first on this one. Um, yeah, uh, I went with uh, with Bob the Knob. Um, so uh, Robert got this one. Uh, I thought his I thought his rebuttal um, tackled a lot of the things that I, that I want, want, wanted to get covered, uh, and then Cam just kind of, for me, he kind of bumbled on the rebuttal, but there's also two other stages. I'll go next. I went with Robbie P. Um, I thought that Robert's whole thing about um, saying that, yeah, this character is a good character in this one movie, but there is like decades and uh, four movies worth of character arcs for Ripley that just works so well um, that that part of the argument won me over, so I went with Robert. Cody, your vote doesn't count, but where would you have gone and why? You know, when somebody gets, like, the obvious choice, there's, they fumble so many times, like, they have the clear-cut answer, and it, I've seen, like, the upset win all the time. Mm -hmm. Robert's opening was, like, the most, like, proficient way to handle Ripley, and, like, set that character up for the entire argument and gave so much detail into Ripley that Cam just couldn't mm -hmm. argue against it after the end of the day. Like even Robert said something misheard him, made Cam use part of his time to say clearly redefine, which helped his case, but couldn't get enough attacks in on why Ripley is that good of a character. So I went with the spider. Um but yeah, this, this is a great fight overall. I just think like that was just that's the way to handle picking the right character which some people would say so absolutely so that means your winner is robert parker uh moving on to the number one contenders match uh, we will start by talking to cameron cameron uh great match you took it to the final question um this is your first season you just debuted two matches ago so you're two and one really great record really great performance how are you feeling uh yeah obviously it would have been nice to win uh but I didn't have the highest of hopes going into this. Like I said, Robert has played for the title more times than I've played. Uh, so that's kind of intimidating. Uh, yeah, on that last question, Robert said Ripley first, uh, and then I panicked. Uh, although, uh, can I challenge that uh, that's technically a fandom movie now? Nope, it's not yet. Nope. All right, worth a shot. Uh, um, but no, this was fun. Uh I, I finally got to watch Goodfellas, uh, and I do think The Departed is a better movie, um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I mean, I no, yeah, I I had fun. I'm excited to come back. 
maybe next time I'll stop taking advice from Thomas Scully about Wizarding World characters in the Divergent franchise. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, when you do come back, Cameron, who do you want to play? Um, trying to think. Like, see, the thing is, I don't know enough about like who's close and record. You want to play Coho? We understand. Let's I don't. It. We'll book it. Tomorrow. I Coho and I I've... know that enough on just like non-debate conversations. I don't need. I don't need that. Um, I'm shocked. Didn't know Regan I... just lose the other match to get into this? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Rubio yeah. Regan could be fun. Yeah, we can probably make that happen. All right, Cam. Well, um, you played great. We'll see you next season for sure. Uh, let's move over to Robert. Robert, uh, another win on the record. How you feeling? I feel good. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Cam, for getting a little heated doing that Scorsese one. That happens no matter who I play. There's always one question, whether whether it's RJ or Tim or uh, you or whoever, or Coho, I don't care. There's usually one question that I just like get get into it too much. And uh, usually I lose that question, which I did again today. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so sorry about that, but no, this is a great time. I think Cam had some really interesting arguments. Uh, I tried my best in that Cornetto trilogy one. Uh, I at least had fun with it. Um, the the divergent one was also just a, a strange argument to to make. Uh, and yeah, I think um, like 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 Cody said, sometimes like even if you get the um, the obvious answer, uh, you still have to argue well. And I I'm. I, I think I did really well in that speed round, and I'm excited to move forward, and I'm excited to see where Cam goes next for sure, too. All right. Well, this means that you are moving on to the number one contenders match to face Nazario Montenegro. Uh, winner of that will go on to play uh, Kirk. So uh, oh, what do you think about that? I'm excited to play Nazario. I, I beat him once before, right? Correct. That, And he and wants to I'm play you I'm going to do it again. He wants uh, to play you bad. I, I, I'm excited to play him again. I hope that we both are gentlemen and pick categories that we both can uh, uh, argue relatively well in, uh, because I, I think it'll be. I think it's more fun if you have uh, four questions that both people can like have a like fair background and perspective on. Um, but also, sometimes you just like want to win, and sometimes you play the game. Uh, so maybe I'll just put on like I don't know, like 2010s. Uh, uh, movies that were written by uh, Brian De Palma or something like that. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Interesting. Sure. All right, Robert. Well, we'll see you uh, in a couple weeks here for the number one contenders match. Yeah. Congrats on the win tonight, Brooklyn. Any final thoughts from you? Uh, no, that was uh, that was really cool. Um, after like judging so many times, I'm finding like a rhythm in debate and very similar to like a UFC fight. You kind of hear like when like the big strikes are coming in. So I'm I'm really enjoying that. But uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, Cody. Final thoughts from you. Really excited. Sorry, Robert just looked it up. Uh, he wrote passion. Um, the only thing that Brian De Palma has written in the 2010s, so can't use that category. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, if you want that fair matchup, if you're going to beat Nazario, you're going to play Kirk, and Kirk will not play by those rules. Um, so you might as well just be ready for that. No, I think this was overall a good fight. Um, Robert can completely sucked the Scorsese question away and what a shitty answer he gave and how shitty he debated that, but he still won. Um, and I think Cam's going to be good next season, so we'll see. I think Cam starting 2-1 and one, having to play Robert this early, I think uh, I think he could have beat him. I think if a different question shows up, if he does not listen to Thomas Scully, I think he can clearly win that because he knows a lot about that category. So, sure. um, 
I don't know if I'll ever be in fan zone because this is a sad, sad day in my life. But overall, what a great time to be with all of you. Well, Cody, I'll see you in two weeks for the number one contenders match. So uh, it'll it'll be it'll be it'll be fun. Uh, so thank Looking you all for, for fan zone. Thank, thank you all for watching. Uh, we're very close to the end of the year and to the end of the season. We just got those two matches left. It's gonna be great. So we'll see you guys real soon with the next one. Until then, thank you to Robert. Thank you to Holtzman, Brooklyn and Cody. Until next time, have a good one. Asshole! That's my dad. I was sending a tweet.